Mark chapter 16, as Pastor G mentioned earlier, next week will be our two-year anniversary, and it was at our first service that we began studying the book of Mark some two years ago. And uh, today will be our last sermon from the book of Mark. And uh, we're excited about that, not because we're sick of Mark or want to get out of it or anything, but it's just a wonderful thing to have studied it together, every single verse, the Lord having walked us through it. We're going to start in verse 15 of Mark 16. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Father, thank you for this day where your son commissioned these men and women. And Lord, we thank you because we realize today that to a large degree we are the fruit of their labor, of their partnership with you, that you sent them into the nations with the gospel, and we are here in this nation 2,000 years later, saved, redeemed, sanctified, and looking forward to being glorified with you because of faithful men and women who heard you commission and who obeyed. Lord, would you make us such people today? Would you speak to our hearts today and place callings upon our lives? Would you commission us? Would you call some to the nations today, Lord? Would you call us into a partnership with you, laboring for your kingdom, for your glory? And so, Lord, just as these men and women were faithful, do that in our hearts, Lord. Make us doers of your word. Make us respond to your word. I ask that you would speak to us now through it, and that by your grace, every word that falls from these lips would be directly from you. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, we have before us this morning what has historically been called the Great Commission. That is when Jesus, before he ascended, said to the disciples that they were to go unto all the nations and preach the gospel to the entire world. It is the Great Commission, and it's important for us to realize, first thing this morning, that it was never called the Great Suggestion. Jesus never lightly sort of insinuated that if the disciples weren't busy or they weren't occupied with other things or if it just merely fit into their schedule or it didn't mess with their finances or their family, that maybe if they sort of felt like it, they could sometime possibly share the gospel with somebody. That's not the way he gave it to them. He commissioned them in a very profound, authoritative, and empowering way. I want you to see something now in Matthew 28 in the parallel account. Go to Matthew 28, please. <clears throat> Matthew 28, we have the parallel account of what's in Mark 16, those verses we just read. And it says in verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Look at me. 
Very, very important concept. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He prefaces the Great Commission with this statement. Now, when he used that word authority, in the Greek, it is the word exousia. And that Greek word combines two ideas, the idea of right and the idea of might. And so when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he is saying effectively that he has all the might in heaven and all the right in heaven, and that he has all the might on earth and that he has all the right on earth, that there is no name above his name, that there is nobody else before him or above him, that he is the first of all things, he is the last of all things, He is all things, and he has all authority, all right, all might, all power in heaven and on earth. Now imagine if you're the disciple there, and Jesus died upon the cross, and he's resurrected, and now you hear him stand before you and say, okay, I have all the right and all the might. At that moment, if you were the disciple, you might be going, oh, This is wonderful. Okay, you really are the Mashiach, the King, the Messiah, the King. You're the conquering King, right? And we were kind of nervous when you did that whole cross thing. Saturday was kind of gnarly. We didn't know what would happen. But now you rose from the dead and you're proclaiming that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. So Lord, what are you going to do? You're going to let the Romans have it, right? You're going to establish a nation, right? You're going to let the Pharisees have it. You're the mighty one. You're the great one. You're risen. Lord, what are you going to do? And he says to them in the next verse, you go therefore and make disciples. Us go? No, Lord, you go. You're the one with all the power. You're the one with all the might. We go, you go. No. The Lord said, I have all the authority, all the right, all the power, all the might. Now you go. When he did that, he commissioned them. By first pronouncing that he had all power and might and authority and then telling them to go, it was an entrusting of that authority to the disciples. What does it mean to be commissioned? Very simply, to be given authority to act on behalf of another. To be authorized to do something for another. It is an entrusting of power. So when he proclaimed, I am the all-powerful one, now you go, he was entrusting that power to them. He was authorizing them to work in his name with his authority according to his power and for his kingdom. And so they began to realize that they were commissioned representatives. And thank God that some of those men and women were faithful. We also realize that not only are we to be commissioned representatives, but we are to be ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ Jesus, Christians. What does that mean? I wasn't sure, so I looked it up in Webster's, and Webster says this. An ambassador is... The highest-ranking diplomatic representative appointed by one country or government to represent it to another. I want you to listen to that. The highest-ranking representative appointed by a government to represent it to another. Now, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says that we are citizens of heaven, amen, that our citizenship is not on the earth, but we belong to the kingdom of God. 
And so we, having been chosen by him, having been commissioned, are ambassadors appointed to represent the government of God and the kingdom of Christ in this world. And by the very sense of the word, you have been appointed. Listen to me. You have been appointed. That means that you have been chosen. If a president is elected, he gets to choose his ambassadors. They are handpicked. You have been handpicked by God, as amazing as it seems, to represent him. We also understand that we are highest ranked when it comes to communicating the gospel. There is no other living creature that is to be sharing the gospel other than you and I. We, his church. Angels are not supposed to share the gospel. In the book of Revelation, there is a gospel toward the end of the tribulation period. A a gospel, an angel, excuse me, that flies around preaching the gospel in heaven. But that is the only time in history past or in eternity future. We have been chosen by hand, highly honored to represent God in the gospel. And remember, we have been commissioned, empowered, What an honor. What a privilege. What greater honor is there in all the earth than for the sovereign God of the universe to say, I would like you to personally represent me to others. What an honor. What a responsibility. If you realize the responsibility of that, then you immediately begin to say, Lord, I'm not worthy and I can't do that. And that's true. But notice what he says in the Great Commission is that he has not left us alone. Continue reading in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says that I am with you always, even to the end of the age, meaning to the end of the job. I have all the power, I have all the might. I'm entrusting it with you. I'm authorizing you to act on my behalf. Now you go, but I will be with you to the end of the job. Same thing in Mark 16, verse 20, we already read it. It says that they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. While the Lord worked with them. So when we go out to preach for Jesus Christ, when we go out to actively engage in the work of the kingdom, The Lord is with us. We are authorized by him, and his power has got to be upon us. After he commissioned the boys in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he said to them, Now, tarry in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem. Don't do anything until you have received power from on high. And then in verse 8, he said, You will receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So not only does he handpick you, and then commission you, authorize you. But then he gives you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, power from on high. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, that we are God's fellow workers. We partner with God in this. It's his kingdom, his glory, the power of his spirit. But we partner with him. And then it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's not enough that he has all the authority and then entrusts it to us, and then he allows the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us, but he has already prepared the works beforehand. All we have to do is walk in them. So many people, what am I going to do? Where do I go? I don't know. 
Just follow the Lord faithfully day by day. He's already prepared the good works. All you have to do is walk in them with his empowering. So we proclaim his work, his word, while he is with us through his power, according to his plan and to his glory. The only way that any of this means a hill of beans to you is if you are in love with Jesus Christ. If you are not in love with him, this doesn't excite you. It doesn't mean anything to you. It's another religious burden, bummer. But if you are experiencing a love affair with Jesus, if you're on fire for him, if you're daily communing with him, if he is your passion and your flame and your fuel and your everything, then when he says, hey, I want you to represent me, you think, but Lord, you're wonderful. You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're glorious. You're so merciful. You're so terrific. I get to represent you? Lord, that's so much better than representing myself or anything else. Thank you, Lord. But you see, that ministry is going to flow out of your intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important, Christian, that you cultivate intimacy with God in your daily life. The more on fire you are for him, the more you will represent him. You understand? It's the natural outflow of a love relationship. It is an honor, a privilege, and a joy. And what does our text say that we are to be doing? It says there that we are to be making disciples of all the nations. Making disciples. It's more than just making converts, isn't it? In Mark 16, 16, 15, it said that we are to go out and preach to all the world. But now we have another detail from Matthew. We're to go beyond merely preaching. We are to make disciples. We're to, to disciple people. Understand that this is your job. Your job. Everyone that's here that's a Christian, this is your job. It's not necessarily my job. You see, the church always sees the pastors and the staff, and they look and say, you do it. You go do all that stuff in the Bible, and we'll just give you a little bit of money, and we'll show up, and hooray, hurrah, but you do it. It's completely unbiblical. Ephesians 4.12 says that the job of the leadership of the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You're to be doing the work. You come in here, it is our responsibility to feed you the word of God. To prepare an atmosphere where you can come and worship in the presence of God. That he might meet you and begin to transform your heart. That you would come in here and be encouraged by one another as the gifts begin to work. That you would be built up and that you would go out those doors full and filled and on fire and in love with Jesus. And anxious to tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. And then to begin to make disciples. But it is your job. And so here's what it looks like. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Paul writes to Timothy and says, The things that I have taught you, the things that I have entrusted with you, entrust to faithful men who will entrust them to others also. Paul said to Timothy, Paul, or, Timothy, the things you're learning from me, I want you to teach them to someone else who will also teach them to someone else. There we see discipleship happening. Timothy. What I teach you, pass it on to someone who will be faithful to invest in someone. So you see that there is an investment concept in discipleship. And discipleship sometimes seems intimidating. We think, oh, I'm not ready to disciple someone else. I can't make disciples. I'm kind of struggling myself and barely getting along. Listen, all that you need is all you have, and that's Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is whatever the Lord has taught you, and trust that with someone that you know is going to make that investment in someone else, and we will be making disciples of the nations. Let me suggest something. 
I believe that every Christian, to be in a healthy place, ought to have these three relationships functioning in their life. Everyone ought to have a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. What do I mean? Well, put yourself in the place of Timothy. You ought to have a Paul. There should be someone in your life who is more spiritually mature, that is investing in you, that you are approaching them on the basis of, hey man, I want to learn from you. I've seen your walk with God and and the way that you do things and your knowledge of the word and your obedience. I want you to teach me to walk with the Lord. You ought to have a Paul in your life. If you're a Christian and there's no Paul in your life, you're on dangerous grounds. You need to have an individual that you can go to as a mentor in the things of God and say, teach me. Let me sit at your feet. Let me learn. And then beyond having a Paul, that person that can pour into you, I believe that we all ought to have a Barnabas. Put yourself in the place of Paul. Paul had Barnabas as a ministry partner. Someone they were kind of on equal ground. Someone that he could rub shoulders with and labor in the kingdom with. Someone he could walk side by side with that would encourage him. Barnabas was an encourager. Someone that would partner in the work of God and say, come on, man. Let's be men of integrity. Let's be women of integrity. Let's press into the word of God and the things of God and the kingdom of God. Let's go pray for that guy. Let's go tell him, come on, man. You need a Barnabas in your life. Someone that's kind of on equal ground that you can serve the Lord with, that you can experience these things together. And lastly, I suggest that we all ought to have a Timothy. That is, you ought to be a Paul to somebody. Someone who's a little younger in the walk, that you look at him and you say, oh, look at that little guy. I want to invest in him. I don't know much, but the Lord's taught me a few things. I want to teach him to you. I want to tell you what the Lord has shown me, and I want to pray for you, and I want to walk through life with you. And when hard things come up, I want to be there for you to listen and then to speak the word of God into your life. And then I want to give you opportunities because God wants to use you. And so I want to give you some opportunities as Paul gave Timothy opportunities. So I believe that every Christian should have those relationships, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. And when you do, you set yourself up not only to be a disciple, but make disciples. And in order to be a disciple, uh, excuse me, in order to make disciples, you've got to be one. And a disciple is simply this, a person who is progressively learning to bring all aspects of their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Read between the lines. A disciple is someone who is all messed up, doesn't have it all figured out, but they're slowly learning to submit all of their life to the Lord. Amen? That's what it means to be a disciple, though, but that you are progressing. Jesus made some very bold statements in the Gospels about being his disciple. It means that there is a conscious decision to deny self and follow after him, and there is a daily progression in the things of God. Not only disciples, but we're also to be baptizing people. It says that we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that Jesus says, in the name of, notice that it is singular, There he makes a claim to both deity and for the existence of the Trinity. We are to baptize in the name, a singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to turn back to Mark 16 as we see something else about baptism. Mark 16 again. Mark 16, in verse 16, 
It says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, some have taken the first part of that verse. He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved. And they begin to teach, okay, so you must then be baptized to be saved. Listen, read the rest of the sentence. Jesus says, and he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. In other words, the crux of the issue, what provides salvation is our belief in Jesus Christ as the only unique Son of God, Savior of the world who died upon the cross for our sins. We don't add to it a work. He didn't say, he who disbelieved and is not baptized shall be condemned. Simply, he who disbelieved. The crux is belief. We see it in uh, John 3.36. Or, excuse me, that one too, but let's do John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Not believe and be baptized. Jesus is simply highlighting in the Great Commission that as we go forth into the world, we are to be preaching the gospel, making disciples, and baptizing them in the name that is above all names. It's very clear in Ephesians 2.8. We are saved by grace through faith alone and not of works. Amen? So then what is baptism? If it's not necessary for salvation, why do it? Well, we do it in obedience to the Lord. He said we ought to be baptized because of the powerful public proclamation that it is. When we are baptized, we are proclaiming to the world, I am no longer my own. I have been bought with a price. I am identified with Jesus in his death, and I am identified with him in his resurrection. And because of his sacrifice upon the cross, I have been washed white as snow. And so we have all of that pictured in baptism. We have there the water, and just as we have been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ, we go into the water. And just as Romans 6 says, we have been identified in his death, we go down, and we have been identified in his resurrection. We are raised up to newness of life. So It is an outward showing of the inward doing. On the inside, you've been washed white as snow, made brand new. The old man is dead. You're now alive to Christ. No longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith unto him. And it's a public proclamation that I belong to him. And it's to be done publicly. And it's a powerful symbol. It's not meaningless. It's very important in the church. And every Christian ought to be baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, what comes next in our text are five very exciting things. Start reading with me in verse 17. Jesus says, And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Jesus states here very plainly, very clearly, that those who believe in him, those who are Christians, will cast out demons in his name. This is basic Christianity. That we have been given authority in the spiritual realm and over demonic powers. Remember way back at the beginning of our study of Mark, in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus called the disciples, and it says three things. He called the disciples that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and that they might have authority over demons. And then three chapters later, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, he sends them out two by two on their first little excursion, their first little mission trip. And it says there in Mark 6, 7, that he gives them authority 
over demons. And when they come back from that trip, we pick it up in the parallel account of Luke chapter 10, they begin to rejoice. Jesus, even the demons are subject to us. We are casting out demons just like you do, Lord. And the Lord says, don't be excited about that. Be excited that your name is written in the book of lives. In other words, the most wonderful and powerful and profound miracle in all of existence is that a wretched sinner like me can be saved. But part of the benefit of salvation is that becoming now a child of the king, we are entrusted with his authority. And if there's one thing we know about Jesus Christ, it is he is absolutely authoritative over the entire spiritual realm. And that all of the demonic spiritual realm must obey him. And so we, as those who have been commissioned, entrusted with power and authority, we who are his ambassadors, his chosen representatives, have the authority in his name, not in our own, to cast out demons. It's basic Christianity. Amen. Praise the Lord. Secondly, it says that people would be speaking with new tongues. We see it throughout the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. The gift of tongues was imparted. And we see that they were declaring the wonderful works of God. And that is one of the functions of the gift of tongues. The tongues is used in a congregational setting. We would expect at that time that it is declaring the wonderful works of God, speaking forth the praises of God. In a more private setting or in a prayer setting, there's also tongues that is your prayer language, where according to Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't always know how we ought to pray. And so the Spirit of God helps us. It's a gift that is seen throughout the book of Acts, and it's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. And we believe at this church that it is a gift that is for today. And if God gives you that gift, you ought to practice it. Not everybody has a gift of tongues. We do not believe that it is necessary to have tongues as a sign of being baptized in the Spirit. But sometimes when people are baptized in the Spirit, they receive the gift. Other times they don't. And you see that very clearly in the book of Acts. But what a wonderful gift it is to be able to use and to pray. And Jesus said that some of his believers would do that. And then in, uh, the third thing that we see is that they will pick up serpents. Now, Pastor G uh, brought today uh, these little snakes right here, and I'm going to unleash these snakes, and we're going to pass them around. Come on. Why do people do that? There are churches today that according to this verse, they have a service and they bring out snakes and they handle the snakes and they do a little snake dance and they let the snake bite them and they say, praise the Lord. Come on. That's not what the Lord is talking about. The idea here is protection in ministry, not a demonstration. It's protection in ministry, not a demonstration. And that's exactly how we see it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, Paul is shipwrecked, and he's in Malta. And he comes upon the shore, and there he is interacting with some of the locals. And he reaches into the wood to get out some wood for a fire, and a viper comes out and bites him. And the locals go, ooh, this guy's a goner. And it doesn't affect Paul whatsoever. And we're told that because of that, the locals were willing to listen to what Paul had to say. There we see Paul on the front lines of ministry being obedient to carry out the Great Commission. And when this adversity comes of a snake biting him, he receives divine protection and that it accompanies him and authorizes the words that he spoke. You understand that? And so in the same way today, perhaps you're on the mission field and a snake bites you and God may preserve you and protect you from that. Maybe not. Sometimes people die in the cause of the ministry, for the cause of the gospel. 
But if you are serving the Lord radically and faithful, you will not die one minute before your appointed time. If you are his servant actively engaged, then God has appointed your time. And until then, you are granted divine protection in all circumstances. And when your number is up, your number is up. Also says that they will drink deadly poison and it will not harm them. Now, that is the one of the ones that we've looked at so far that is not in the book of Acts. We don't see anyone in the book of Acts uh, drinking poison. doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, I was studying from the New Geneva Study Bible by Nelson. And on the notes of this verse, it says, Stories about some of the apostles surviving being forced to drink poison are found in early Christian literature outside of the Bible. So apparently there are extra-biblical historical sources about apostles who have drank poison. Again, it is the idea of protection, not demonstration. Someone was forced in the cause of the gospel to do it, and the Lord, because he was not done with them yet, preserved and protected them. Uh, Way gnarlier things than that happened in the book of Acts. Remember when Paul was stoned with rocks in Acts chapter 14? In Acts chapter 14, some of the Jews came, and because he was preaching the gospel, they threw stones at him. Listen, Jews knew how to stone. They've been doing it for thousands of years. Jews took rocks about this big, and they began to throw them at your head and at your body until you were buried and dead in these rocks. They did that to Paul because he was representing Jesus Christ. And they left him for dead, we're told in Acts chapter 14. We're told that Paul got from out underneath the rocks, and he walked right back through the walls of the city and began to preach the gospel again. That's way gnarlier than snake bites and poison. That's God's divine protection. What about Daniel in the lion's den? What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire? And there the Lord was with them because they were being obedient to represent him. You be obedient to represent God and he will be with you in his authorizing and protecting divine presence in every trial and circumstance. Amen? Last thing it says people will do is lay hands upon the sick and they will recover. We talked about that a few weeks ago um, in our study. Again, basic Christianity. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, and they will pray for him and anoint him with oil. And their sickness will be healed and their sins will be forgiven. Basic Christianity that God is able and willing to heal people and that we can come before him and lay hands. And there's that partnering. When we lay hands on somebody and pray for them, it is as though we are, well, not as though, we are representing the hands of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And as we extend our hands, it is an extending of that authorizing power that we have been entrusted with. And often as we pray for people, God gets healed. We've seen it here. We've, the kids who just came back from Thailand saw all of these things happening on their trip. They saw on their trip people set free from demons. They saw people who were prayed for and they were healed. That giant snake that you saw them holding, he actually swallowed Dominic, our youth pastor, and then spit. No, just kidding. No snake things. But listen, when they were out on the mission field, they experienced supernatural things. People being set free from demonic powers. People being healed. People receiving the gift of tongues. Why did they experience that on the mission field? Because they were fulfilling the Great Commission. Because they were walking in the work of the kingdom, and so they were experiencing the power of the kingdom. You see, when you get yourself on the front line of God's work, you're going to encounter situations that require supernatural assistance, and that's where God comes in. God picks up where you leave off. And when we get in over our head and serving Him, that's when we experience the divine power of God. 
And there's probably many Christians here today who, who read this and say, I, I never see any of those things happen. Well, let me ask you, are you preaching the gospel everywhere? That's what it says in verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Are you active in the kingdom work? Have you said to God, God, what do you want to do in my life? I want it to be so much about so much more than just money and stuff and fun and guys and girls. I want it to count for the kingdom of God. God, what do you have for me? Are you getting radical for the Lord? Are you stepping out in faith? Are you letting him use you? If you are, then you will experience the power of God. If you're not, if you're just a pew potato and you're just absorbed in your own things, there's no reason for God to work the miraculous around you or through you. You're not living a supernatural life. Get out on the front line. Begin to get engaged in the work of God and you will see his supernatural power meet you in amazing ways. Our kids saw it in Thailand. I imagine there's also people here that say, well, I would love to do that, but I think I've been disqualified. Britt, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I do in the secret. I am a Christian. I do love the Lord, but I've blown it in so many ways. I just don't feel worthy. I just don't think God would ever use me. Sorry. I'm going to have to take that excuse from you today. The Bible is full from cover to cover of men and women who are not worthy. Men and women who made mistakes. Men and women who had flaws. Men and women who were imperfect that God used radically from cover to cover. There are no excuses. If you feel like God doesn't want to use you, listen to this list. He used Noah, and Noah was a drunk. He used Abraham, and Abraham was too old. He used Isaac, and Isaac was a daydreamer. He used Jacob, and Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses couldn't talk. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Jesus Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. Thank you, God, that you have filled your book with men and women who are like us, imperfect and messed up, and yet you are in love and you have saved us. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that with that exhortation that today you would take the excuse from every Christian in here of I can't be used and that you would begin to use them, Lord. I ask that you would commission people today, Jesus that you would call them out, that you would identify gifts for them, or you would even impart gifts to them, that you would call people to certain nations today, that you would call people to their families or to their schoolmates or to their workmates. Lord, we just pray that you would begin to place callings on lives here and begin to show each one where they fit into your kingdom plan. As we begin to worship the Lord, for those of you that feel it would be right, I want you to surrender before God and say, God, what do you want me to do? Look no further. Here I am. Send me. I'd invite you to come forward and get on your face before the Lord up here, if that's you. Say, here I am, Lord. 
What do you want me to do? And when God speaks to you, then I want you to grab someone around you, someone that you came with or someone you've never seen. I want you to say, God is calling me to do thus and so. Or God is calling me to do, and I don't even know. But you, that person, then begin to pray for them. Pray for God's empowering upon them, for the baptism of the Spirit to come upon them. Pray for God to give them the gifts that they need. Pray for them to be obedient to walk in that calling. So let's seek the Lord together. It's a brand new school year. It's a brand new season. Lord, what do you want me to do? And then have somebody pray for you for empowering, gifting, and obedience in your life. Let's seek the Lord. See where he'll send us.